Well, I want to begin by saying again what a pleasure it is to be here tonight. The singing was, wow, it was really good. It was so good that I had to go back and get a drink of water. I'm kind of hoping my voice lasts through this sermon. But uh, we've all been edified even if we don't do another thing. Uh, it's been really, really a fantastic evening so far. And, and I hope our study together tonight is something that, that will be edifying to you and will be important to you. And that it's something that will cause us to think a little bit about a very important topic. Tonight we're going to talk about the topic of abortion. This topic was requested. And it's something that the leadership of this church wanted someone to speak about this week. And because I had already taken government, I thought I would take another controversial topic. But I don't think that this should be a controversial topic. And I want to I talk about this topic tonight. But I want to talk about it. And I want to be clear at the beginning of this. I want to talk about this topic with some degree of, of empathy to the extent I can give it, with some degree of sympathy, with some degree of humility about some of the issues that this topic brings up. There are ways we could address the topic of abortion that are right and that are wrong, and I want to talk about that at the beginning as we begin tonight. You know, there are wrong ways to address this question as Christians. One of those ways is through politics. We talked about a little bit about that last night. You know, if the Bible condemns an action, then our political affiliation does not exempt us from God's law. We don't get to say that our political beliefs trump God's law, one way or the other. God's law should reign supreme. We can approach this sometime through legal issues, and that's been done recently. Most of you, I'm sure all of you by now, know about the Dobbs decision, which was a Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe versus Wade, a decision that in 1973 upheld a constitutional right to an abortion, and Dobbs overturned that a few weeks ago. That was an important constitutional decision. But I will tell you, if the Bible condemns an action, it doesn't matter how many judges we have in robes that say it's right or not right. If God's word speaks to that, God's word is supreme, whichever way that goes. We could also approach this topic from an issue or a degree of expediency. What is most convenient? What is most you know, conducive to how we want to live our lives? But folks, the Bible, if it condemns an action, it's not going to do on the day of judgment to look at God and say, but it was more convenient. It was more expedient for me to do this. That's not going to work. We could also talk about it as a human rights issue, and a lot of times we talk about this topic as a human rights issue. But again, if the Bible condemns an action, there's not any degree of human rights that are going to overcome God's sovereign right to rule on the day of judgment. God gets to make that decision. Humans may have created rights, and we may think we have rights, and, and it's certainly good for us to try and respect rights where we can. But folks, God's word is supreme. Now, there are some proper ways to address, or a proper way to address this question. If our perspective is spiritual, and by your attendance here tonight, I want to assume that everyone here has a spiritual view. If your perspective is spiritual, then there's only one lens through which we can look at this question. And that is through the Word of God. What does the Word of God say about this? And folks, if the Word of God says that abortion is okay, that settles the question. And if the word of God says that abortion is not okay, that settles the question. And you can toss politics and human rights and expediency and the judicial system and everything else out because God is sovereign. And that's the lens through which we need to analyze this issue. Now, as we begin this, this, this study, I want to talk about why this issue is so important. I think for many that is self-evident. But I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that as we begin tonight. Since 1973... When Roe versus Wade held that abortions could be legally obtained, it is estimated that there have been nearly 65 million abortions in the United States. Now, those statistics are based on work done by the Guttmacher Institute. The Guttmacher Institute is, is no friend to people who oppose abortion. They are a pro-choice organization, so those statistics are not slanted. They are estimated only because some abortions are not reported. But the vast majority of that 65 million number are documented legal abortions where there are records for them. So that is a solid number, 65 million abortions. Now, sometimes when we talk about statistics and we talk about numbers, they kind of roll through our head and maybe we don't understand exactly 
what the magnitude of that number is. But I want to see if I can illustrate with that, with that with you tonight by this. When we talk about 65 million aborted people, we are talking about enough abortions to eradicate the population of D.C., the population of Wyoming, Vermont, North Dakota, Alaska, South Dakota, Delaware, Montana, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Maine, Hawaii, Idaho, West Virginia, Nebraska, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Kansas, Arkansas, Mississippi, Iowa, Connecticut, Oklahoma, Oregon, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Alabama. That means we have aborted enough babies that you could drive through all of those states and not seeing, see a single solitary soul. Every one in those states gone because of the issue of abortion. Now, like I said, we can let these numbers roll off of our tongue sometimes, and sometimes we get lost in what these numbers mean, but folks, that is a tremendous amount of human loss. And the reason I do that tonight is because, look, if, if abortion is a killing of a human being, we have got a tremendous problem on our hands. We have got an awful problem on our hands. Now, I wish I could tell you that that's as bad as the numbers get, but it's really not, because those are statistics only since 1973, and it's only the United States. If we consider other nations just for that time period since 1973. Well, as we start to consider that, we can take away more and more states. And as we take away those states, those are more states that would be eradicated completely as we think about the number of abortions that have been committed in this world. And by the time we're done considering that, we have covered the entire United States. All gone. And I wish I could tell you it was that bad. But you see, we could keep filling up maps. Because it is estimated that in just the last 50 years since Roe versus Wade was decided that there have been approximately one and a half billion abortions worldwide. That is enough to fill up that map of the United States four times. And that is only in the last 50 years. In 2021, the Guttmacher Institute estimated that there were 86,000 abortions in the U.S., which is one about every 36 seconds. If we are here just an hour tonight, there will be about 120 abortions that will be committed while we're here. Folks, this is a very serious issue. It is one that deserves our attention. And folks, with numbers that large, with consequences that extreme, we've got to get this right from a biblical perspective. We, the Bible and, and society demands that we take the time to look at this issue soberly, not emotionally, from a perspective of just wanting to know what God would have us to know about this subject, and then judge a righteous judgment about this practice. But the numbers are too big. We've got to get this right. The Bible talks about this. I want to start with a pr principle that I think is pretty non-controversial as we begin this. The Bible lays down a principle that the taking of an innocent life, the killing of an innocent person is condemned. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, the, there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, listen, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness which pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. The Bible says that the Lord hates the taking of innocent blood. That's a principle that I think 
everyone understands. This should not be a controversial subject for us. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 13, one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not murder. Now sometimes we look at that word and, you know, murder is a loaded word, but, but really what that means is the killing of an innocent life. We're talking about taking some life that does not justify its life being taken. And folks, if, if a baby is a person, if an unborn baby is a person, and we abort it, that is the taking of an innocent life. There is, it is the epitome. It is literally the epitome of innocent life. And so we have to be sober about this issue. Revelation 21 and verse number 8 says, but, all, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The Bible is very clear about what it thinks about this practice. In 1 John 3 and 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that, listen, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the consequences of taking innocent life, and when that sin is not covered by the blood of Christ, folks, that is a serious thing. There is no eternal life when that is present. So again, I think this is a, a non-controversial point. I mean, we need to be fair about where people lay out on this issue. And, and the truth of the matter is, folks who support the right to have an abortion typically don't support what we would ordinarily think about as the homicide of an adult or a teenager. They're usually against that too because they understand that the murder of a person is wrong. They do. Where we disagree is whether or not a baby is a person or not. And whether that killing is something that rises to the level of the killing the Bible talks about. So I think we need to ask the question of whether unborn children are alive. Now, this is the subject that, is, that has haunted the world ever since this, really, this topic really began. And people have approached this from a number of ways all wrong. There have been doctors that have been lined up in courtrooms from here to Seattle to talk about whether or not an unborn baby is enough alive to be a person or not enough alive to be a person. There have been lawyers that have been paid thousands and thousands of dollars to analyze the Constitution and case law to try and figure out whether a baby is a person or not. And again, as we started out tonight, the only way for Christians, for us, to address this issue is not by calling a raft of doctors. And I'm a lawyer, but don't call a lawyer on this topic. The only lens that we should look at this topic through is what does God say about it? So I'm going to spend a little time talking about what God says about unborn children. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse number 4 through 5, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now let me tell you what that says about a baby that was in the womb. What the Lord says is when the baby was in the womb, he knew the baby, he sanctified the baby, he ordained the baby to be a prophet to the nations. Now folks, there are many who claim that something that is in the womb is not alive, that it's just tissue. But you don't know tissue. You cannot ordain tissue. You cannot sanctify tissue. Those are all things that you can do with a person. The Lord says he knew him in the womb. In Job chapter 31, verses 14 through 15, the Bible says, What then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? You see, God doesn't talk about making a person whenever the person is born. He talks about making a person when the person is in the womb. You are made in the womb. And whenever we make something, it exists. A person exists in the womb. That's what God's word says. In the 139th Psalm, I'm sorry, that's a little, little small but it says, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. 
Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were written the days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. The Bible says not only was he covered in his mother's womb, but he says, your eyes saw my substance before I was formed. You see, sometimes we have a debate about whether or not a fertilized egg or uh, uh, an embryo is enough to be a person. The Bible says before we were formed, while we were alive, God saw our substance. We were alive. The Bible never conditions the, 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 a person or personhood on the actual birth of that person. The Bible consistently talks about a person existing in the womb. In, the, in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse number 5, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. So again, it talks here about being formed in the womb. In Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse number 14, Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon. Listen, because he did not kill me from the womb, that my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. It's a morbid passage. It's a very depressing passage. But in this lament, one of the things he laments is that, I wish I could have been killed in the womb. Now, you can't kill anything that's not alive. He says, I wanted the womb to be my grave, meaning that he wished the death would have occurred in the womb, not outside of it. Again, that can't happen unless you're alive in the womb. And he talks about the womb be always being enlarged with him because he never left it. Folks, the Bible's word is pretty clear about what God thinks about this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse number 5, as you do not know what it is, the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. Now, that may slip past us a little bit, the way of the wind, but what it's really talking about there is the spirit that comes to the body. And what the writer is saying here is, look, we don't really understand how in the womb bones are formed and the soul and the spirit come to a body and what he's saying is this is a great mystery now folks it's not a great mystery if you're not alive in the womb it didn't happen but God says it did God says the way of the wind comes to a baby in the womb and the baby is alive and so God's word again is very clear one last verse on this topic is Luke chapter 1 and verse number 35 Again, I know that's a little small. This is the story of, of Elizabeth and Mary. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born who will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, listen, that the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with this Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Folks, that's an unborn baby. And that unborn baby, when it got near the, the Savior, the Christ, it started jumping up and down because it knew what it was coming into contact with. Now, it wasn't just leaping up and down. We're told that it was leaping up and down for joy. Let me tell you what an undifferentiated tissue mass does not have, joy. Let me tell you what an undifferentiated tissue mass does not do. It doesn't leap for anything. Things that leap, things that are happy, things that are joyous, folks, those are things that are alive. God's word is very clear about this. 
Now, again, I, I get it. I understand that this is an emotional issue for many, and I understand that this is a controversial issue for many. But if, if there is ever an issue where we've got a big conflict sometimes between what our, what our world says and what the Bible says, this may be one of them. And we have got to, we have got to, we have got to look at this issue through the right lens. We have to understand what God's word says about this. And God's word is clear. You know, the Bible also said that God's spirit is able to act upon things in the womb. In Luke chapter 1 and verse number 15, it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. You see, God's spirit was able to act on John the Baptist while he was in his mother's womb. That's what that verse is talking about. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, he was set apart. He was picked by God and separated while he was in the womb. God's spirit can act on babies that are in the womb because they are alive. Because they're people. The 22nd Psalm and the 10th first, I, will ca- I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. And so again, the Bible says not only that the baby's alive, but that God's spirit and grace, sanctification, setting apart, can act upon a baby in the womb. Now, God's laws and our laws actually agree on this subject, at least the Old Testament law that God specifically set down. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25, it says, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What does it mean when he says if no harm follows or if harm follows? What he means is what happens to that baby? That's what he means. If, if, some, if a woman is assaulted, if there's something that happens to the woman and the baby is not harmed in that, then the first part of that verse applies. But then if there's harm to the, to the baby in the womb, then the second part of this verse applies. Now listen to the first criteria or measure of judgment. He says, if any harm follows, you shall give life for life. What life? It's the life of that baby. The harm is to the baby. And what he's saying here is if the harm that results is that the baby's life is taken from it, then it's life for life. That's what God's law was in Exodus. I'm going to tell you, That law only makes sense if God believes that there is life in that womb. And I say God believes, if God knows there's life in that womb, because God does know that. Now, ironically, whenever we're divorced from the emotion of the topic of abortion particularly, the world doesn't have a problem seeing this. It just doesn't. There are 38 states in our union that have fetal homicide laws that say that if a woman who is pregnant is injured and the baby is killed, that that's a homicide. Now, I know most of you have watched enough TV to know what a homicide is. A homicide is the killing of a person. 29 of those states apply to the various earliest stages of pregnancy. We're talking about over half the union here, folks. And they talk about any state of gestation or development. We don't get into a question about trimesters. Fertilization, conception, all of those qualify under these fetal homicide laws. And for those of us in Texas, the penal code, I've got the site up there in case you are all aspiring lawyers or some of you are lawyers want to check me out. It defines an individual in the, in, the, in the section that talks about murder as a human being who is alive, including an unborn child at every stage of gestation from fertilization until birth. You see, whenever we're not talking about the topic of abortion, we're just talking about what makes sense in our homicide laws, we don't really have a problem with this concept that there's life in the womb. We get that. We get that if a pregnant lady is harmed and the baby dies, that that is the same as killing a person who is outside of the womb because they're both persons. It's only when we get to the topic of abortion that this gets completely muddied. And the whole dynamic of what we're talking about begins to change. And we need to understand sometimes the hypocrisy of the world whenever it starts to talk about some of these laws, some of these states that have fetal homicide laws are the very states that are going to legalize abortion after the Dobbs decision. 
So listen to this. They're going to have a fetal homicide law, and they're going to have a law that says you can get an abortion. Now figure that one out. We're not consistent. God's law is consistent. I want to talk about some of the justifications that are sometimes levied or argued when we come to the topic of abortion. Now, before we get to this, I want to be real clear about something. I'm a guy. I'm never going to be pregnant. I'm not going to know what it's like to carry a baby. I'm not going to know what it's like to have a baby inside of me for nine months. I don't know that. I don't know what kind of, what kind of difficulties and what kind of issues that causes. I, I can't, the word empathy, that's not something I can have because I can't really understand and explain that. And I want to be honest with you up front about that. I, I don't pretend to be able to empathize with a woman who is pregnant. I can't. And I understand that along with this topic, there are some very emotional and very serious issues that kind of well up in people whenever we start talking about this. All I can do tonight is tell you what I think God's law says about these topics. And we can discuss it afterwards if you've got questions. One of the excuses that is oftentimes given, it's probably one of the more crasser ones, is that sometimes it is just more convenient. Sometimes the excuse is, I'm just not ready to have a baby. And so therefore, it will be more convenient for me to have an abortion. And it's my right. Well, before we get to that, rights, if this person in the womb is in fact a person, there's no right to take another person's life. Not even under, under our secular law, much less under God's law. But let's talk about the issue of convenience for a second. The Bible contains no exemption to the prohibition against taking a life that allows it to occur when it's convenient. God never said that it was okay to take a human life whenever it was in your convenience to do so. He never says that. God's law is very clear that the taking of innocent life is wrong, period, full stop. It's wrong. If the pregnancy is the result of a sinful act, which sometimes happens, and the pregnancy is an unwanted consequence, God's law teaches that there are sometimes consequences to sin that we have to bear. Now, I, I shuddered to write that. And the reason I shuddered to write that is because that line of thinking assumes that a baby is somehow a burden rather than a blessing. And folks, when we start looking at a little innocent baby as an inconvenience to us, as something that is a burden that we should not be troubled with, that ought, to, that ought to reach down and grab something inside of our soul and, and, and be a big warning flag about what are we talking about here. But I understand that there are people that don't subscribe to that line of thinking and maybe they just think, but it's just going to be very inconvenient. I've got to go to school. I've got to have a job. I don't have enough money. The father's not here. There's a lot of, of these convenience things that begin to kind of talk about. And so what does the Bible say? It says... In Jeremiah 5 and 25, your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. You know, sometimes, our, sometimes, and we're talking about when it's the result of a sinful act, there are times that there are consequences to that sin. It just is. In Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 8, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. For who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap life everlasting. If your mindset is that you know what, I engaged in this activity and it resulted in a pregnancy and I don't want this burden and you consider it to be a burden, I guess the first thing I'd like to say is please think about that. But if you can't get past the fact that you think it's a burden, then understand that God's law says that sometimes whenever we're engaged in sinful activity, there are burdens that we have to bear. And we don't get to self-legislate ourselves out of those burdens. And so this excuse that is sometimes given for abortion is not supported by God's law. There simply is no excuse for taking innocent life whenever it's convenient. What about unwanted babies? Sometimes that's something that's, that's given. We just, 
it would be un, it would be it would be wrong to bring this baby into the world because it's not one that I want and I'm not going to care for it like it needs to be cared for. Sometimes that's what happens in marriage. Sometimes couples will have kids and so we're not talking about a sinful act here. We're talking about couples that just had a kid. And whenever the lady is pregnant, they decide, whoa, we didn't want that. We're not ready for that. We got things to do in our single, not single, but our, our, our empty nest lives. And we're, we want to keep that going for a little bit. Some advocate because, like I said, it avoids kids being treated terribly. And so that's the excuse. Well, you see, it's better for them not to be born because if we don't want them and if others don't want them, they'll live a horrible life and go from foster home to foster home. Folks, we're trying to solve the wrong problem. Whenever our response to an unwanted child is that the solution is abortion, we are solving the wrong problem. The problem is not the child. It's not that little baby. The problem is the absence of love. That's the problem. It's not that little baby's fault that the parents don't love it. That's a fundamental problem at the parent level. And to visit that upon the little baby, well, folks, that's terrible. The solution is not abortion. The solution is love. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, our master said this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little kid to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, As surely I say unto you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whosoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now listen to what Jesus says about this. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now folks, I would submit to you that if our master says, that if the affront to the kid is that you caused him to sin, it's better for you to be drowned in the ocean. What do you think he is going to say about killing that innocent kid in the womb? What do you think our master's reaction would be to that? You see, we may think about unwanted babies, but folks, Jesus says they're precious and that we are not to offend them. And if there's ever an offense to a baby, abortion is it. This is probably the most serious one, and it brings up a whole bunch of issues. The case of rape and incest. And this is a tough one for me because I've got two, I've got two girls, and it's hard to talk about this topic because as a father, it brings up a lot of different emotions. You know, this is a horrible, horrible crime. It is. And again, I'm a guy. I, I can't tell you or even begin to even articulate the issues that come up from rape and incest. I, I can't do that. And if we may have some here who've been through this, and if so, God bless you. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. That's awful. I can't imagine as a father what I would do if this happened one of my kids that'd bring up a whole lot of emotions and this is the topic that is often used a lot of times to really argue against abortion it wasn't very long after the Dodds decision came down that there was a headline that I read in the paper about a 10 year old girl in Ohio that was denied an abortion because of the Dodds decision and this poor 10 year old girl got paraded around the United States as an example of why Roe versus Wade should be reinstated and look, I, that, that's terrible that it happened to that little girl. No doubt about it. But I think we need to address this from context. Rape and incest, as horrible they are, account for an exceedingly small number of the abortions that are practiced in this world, far less than 1%. So when we think about this issue, no matter how we come out on this issue, when I understand this is probably the most controversial issue when we talk about this topic, over 99% of the abortions committed, over 99% of the 1.6 billion abortions that have been committed since 1973 are unaffected by this issue. So we need to understand that when we talk about this issue, this issue does not control the response to the topic. It doesn't. 
because it is a very small number statistically. Now, I understand that the issues that it brings up are large. And so I want to talk a little bit about that as we go through that. It's an emotional issue. And like I said, I'm not going to pretend to understand all the emotions here. I can't. But let me tell you something. We cannot address this issue emotionally. Our heart is not a good guide here. We live in a broken world. And even the best of us have been corrupted by this world in some way in our hearts. We try to train our hearts to be as close to God as possible, but we all still commit sin. And so because of this, using our hearts to address this issue is very dangerous. The only reliable guide that we can really go with here is Scripture. And so I'd like to try and address this issue with, issue with Scripture with you. In Genesis chapter 34, in the first two verses, there is a story here. It says, Dinah, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Dinah was raped. And that caused all of the issues that you might imagine it would cause. And I can't imagine what that was like to be Dinah. Again, I said I can't imagine what this would be like to be the father or one of the brothers. The brothers of Dinah found out what had happened. And they devised a plan. That plan was that they were going to, Shechem came and wanted to have Dinah for himself for all time. I guess the one violation was not enough for him. He wanted to take her back home with him. And, and so a plan was made, and the sons, the, the brothers got together, and they devised a plan, and the plan was, we're going to make them all get circumcised. And whenever they get circumcised, that will compromise their ability to fight on the day in which, or soon after it happens. And then we will get our revenge and our justice. So we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 34, verses 25 through 31. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, and all the little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? Now, if we just stop the Bible right there, you might look at that and go, man, Jacob doesn't have the right attitude here. And way to go, Dinah's brothers, for getting some revenge on this filthy human being who had defiled their sister. But you know what? Later on in Genesis chapter 49, verses 5 through 7, God pronounces a curse on Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man, and in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. God was upset about the vengeance that they had taken. And I think it was the way they took it. It says they took it in anger, and they slew a man. Now, I'm not telling you that, that there are not punishments for this activity, and God's word contains punishments, but it was the way that this was carried out, and because of that, God was upset at Simeon and Levi. Now, some of you in the audience may be saying, now, I don't understand what this has to do with the topic of abortion, because the Bible never says Dinah was with child, and so why are we talking about Dinah getting raped when there was no pregnancy here? Here's my point. If God was upset at Simeon and Levi to the point that he felt it was necessary to curse them, because they had killed the perpetrator of the rape. What do you think God's response would be if the impetus was to kill the fruit of that and to destroy the innocent baby? Now, folks, Shechem, we all get that, right? Most of us probably, when we read the first part of that story, went, he got his just desserts. He got what was coming to him. And as a father, I can empathize with that emotion. 
But let me tell you something. What God said is when it was done in anger like that, it was a problem. And if God was upset at the taking of the perpetrator's life, the little innocent baby that had nothing to do with that, nothing to do with that, had no say in that situation whatsoever, if we kill that little baby because we say, hey, look, this problem occurred and therefore we don't need to have this kid, folks, the baby didn't do that. Now, look, I say that with knots in my stomach because I understand that I don't understand what it's like to be involved in that situation, and I can't even imagine what it would be like to have to be put into that situation. But, folks, as emotional as that is for me and as difficult as that is for me, it doesn't change the fact that there's a life, an innocent life that was created. It just doesn't. Now look, we can disagree on that issue. I understand. I think God's word is clear. But folks, that should not change our view on abortion because again, this is an exceedingly small topic. The world is very good about bringing up things that happen very rarely and then parading little kids like they did this week on the, on, in front of the news to make an example, to win a political point or a judicial point. Shame on them. The horror and the agony and the pain of that little girl should have never been on the front page of a newspaper. Nobody should have ever talked about that. But now she's got newspaper stories written all over the United States about it. Aren't we great? But the person who didn't do anything in that situation is the little baby. And we just have to confront no matter how we come at this, that if we're going to have an abortion, if we're going to take a kid in the womb, folks, we're killing something. The Bible says that. The Bible, the womb doesn't automatically not become alive because of the way in which the baby was con- conceived. It's still alive. And we have to deal with that. I know that's tough. I know for some of you that's hard to hear. Hard for me to hear as a father and as a husband. But we have to approach this from the Word of God. And we have to look at what the Word of God says. In Matthew chapter 5 and in verse number 38, the Bible says, You have heard that it has been said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I will tell you to resist not an evil person. But whosoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it has been said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, listen, I did not read that to talk about how we should react to the issue of rape and incest. Not, I'm not here to tell you that, that, that we should, you know, that there's any, that speaks to the concept. I'll be honest with you, if my kids are in that situation, I hope they fight. I hope they fight. And I hope they win. The reason I read that verse is because if God tells us to love our enemies... Let me tell you what the little baby in the womb is. It's not your enemy. The little baby's innocent. It's never done anything to anybody. And so whenever we start talking about what we're going to do to the womb, and God has called us to love even our enemies, what should we do with that little baby in the womb? I think we need to save it. I think God's words demands that we save it. We need to think carefully about that issue. Romans 8 and 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I read this at the end because I want us to understand that at the end, we're talking about this, and and it's because of the way of the world. We talk about this so many times, like the result of an unwanted pregnancy is this horrible consequence. Folks, the result is a baby. I am guessing that we have some folks here tonight who maybe had a baby that wasn't necessarily expected. Maybe even at the time, it was a regret because it wasn't supposed to happen. For those of you who have those kids, is there a one of you that would do anything without them? Would you trade them for anything? Look at your kids. Would it matter to you today how they came into this world? Or what the circumstances were? Would you throw any of them back because of the way they were born? I wouldn't. And I bet you wouldn't either. We need to be careful about what we're thinking about here. And no matter how we come out on the concept of abortion, 
The end result of this is not some horrible consequence. The end result of this is a life. A baby that will love us. A soul that we get to raise. Someone that we can teach to glorify God. To be a good example, to be a good influence. To be a companion with us. Folks, this is not... When we deal with this issue, the result is good if we deal with it right. And we need to understand that. Now, as we close, I want to talk about how should we respond to Roe versus Wade being overruled. You know, some people are gloating a lot right now and saying, well, we won for those who are against abortion. Let me tell you what the sides who are against abortion or for abortion are not saying. They're not saying you won. They're saying the fight has only just begun. As a legal matter, all that decision did was return the issue to the states. There are plenty of states that are still going to legalize abortion. So we haven't won a thing in those states. And for our southern states, if you think everybody's rolling over and going to let that go, there are already preparations being made. There is, uh, I read an article uh, this week about a ship that is being prepared that will sail around the Gulf of Mexico so that abortions can be performed on the ship if you live in a state that will not allow you to have one. This is not going away. More importantly, the, single, the Supreme Court's ruling can't change a single heart. If you think someone who felt strongly about this issue all of a sudden felt differently because the Supreme Court decided something, you're crazy. Look at the, look at the pictures and the videos of the protest that were going on after this. Do you think it changed hearts? It didn't change a heart. Why is that? Because the Supreme Court is a bunch of humans that are not directed in God's way in the, in the sense that they're trying to do God's work. That's not their purpose. They're trying to interpret the Constitution. And folks, what we need to do is we've got to change hearts and only God's word can do that. There will always be a way to perform abortions if somebody wants it. And so you and I are not going to get rid of this issue unless we change hearts. That's why I wanted to have the sermon last night as a lead up to this. You and I can pass anti-abortion laws from here to the moon. And unless we change hearts, there's still babies that are going to lose their lives. And you and I can pack the Supreme Court with a million conservative judges if that's what you want. And you know what? It's not going to change a single person's heart. And there's still going to be little babies losing their lives. Only God's word can do that. But let me tell you something. Whenever you and I go to talk about this issue, we can do it in one of two ways. I'm sure there's lots of other ways. But I'll tell you, I've seen one of two ways. The way that's ugly, which is the way where we go, and maybe some have done this in, in the, in the, since, since Dobbs got announced, with a chest puffed out like we've won something, and we go around talking to people about, yeah, we got you now. And Let me tell you something. That's not going to convert a single person, not one. You can take up a picket sign and start screaming at the people across the street from you, and maybe it'll make you feel good, but let me tell you what it's not. It's not going to change anybody's mind. And I would suggest to you it's not particularly Christian. There's a way that we have to do this, and the way you and I do this is through the Word of God, and we don't share the Word of God through mean-spiritedness, through compelling people or yelling at people. That's not the way we are able to win hearts. We've got to do this in the right spirit. And I would suggest to you that that's in the spirit of love with as much compassion in our hearts as we can possibly muster. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You and I can can go share this message in a we-got-you-now way, and people are going to turn you out, tune you out. You can talk to people in a meek, in an humble way that tries to be sympathetic and shares God's word. Don't water down the message. Don't change what God said about it. Just be kind. Be a, be a human being and talk to them and convince them that God's word is what they ought to be listening to. In Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which with you are called with all lowliness and gentleness, 
with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The hallmarks of us as Christians is lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and love. Not a baseball bat. And we've got to understand that. To those as we close, to those who are torn about this subject, and now there may be some who are torn on the whole subject or maybe on some of the excuses or the justifications that we talked about. Look, I get it. It's understandable because it is an emotional topic. I understand that. And the consequences are high. And many cannot truly empathize with the plight of some woman in very difficult situations. I'm one of them because I'm a man. I think it's very difficult for men to really truly empathize on this situation. But as we close, what I'd ask you to think about if you're torn on this issue is to consider taking the perspective of Christ on this issue. And I don't do this in some kind of preachy way because it's easy for a guy to say, I get that. But all I can do is just share with you the words of the master. See, when he was about to be crucified, he said this. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, the master, whenever he was about to be crucified for us, he didn't want to die because he's human. And so because he was human and had that human part of him, he went to God and he said, God, if there's anything that can be done so that I don't have to do this, I'd wish this cup would pass. But he understood something. You know what he understood? He understood there was going to be a Van Miller. He understood there was going to be a Brent Benoit. He understood there was going to be a Becca and a Christie and a Brooke and a Brittany and everybody here. And so he went to that cross and he submitted to the will of his father because he understood what it meant to others that he loved. Folks, whenever we think about that little baby that's inside a womb, all I can do is beg with you to have the perspective of Christ. Set aside your will and let the will of God be done. And I think we'll be in a much better place. That's the lesson for the evening. I apologize, I went a little long. Sorry for that. But I think this is an important issue. We haven't talked about the first principles tonight, but we don't want to close without giving people an opportunity. If you're here and you would like to be added to God's kingdom, we'd love to help you tonight. That takes believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, being willing to repent of our sins, being willing to confess Him before men, and be willing to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Now, folks, what's great about that call is that that remission covers all sins. We've talked about some very serious ones tonight. And folks, if you're involved in any of the sins that we've talked about tonight, understand God's word and the blood of Christ is far more powerful than the weight of those sins. He can defeat them. He can wash them away. He can cleanse you. You can be sanctified and justified tonight. Or if you're here and you need the prayers of the church for any reason whatsoever, we'd love to pray for you. If there's one of either case, come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.